Coming at you from the CSP studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, on EMTR Radio Network. This is the Passball Show, of course, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. want to welcome everybody tuning in. Just to let you know that this is not a replay, but my show was previously recorded earlier in the week. As at the time that the show is going to be playing, I'm going to be down in Orlando, Florida, eventually making my way down to Port St. Lucie to catch my share of spring training games like I do each year following the New York Mets. I believe the day before, which would, be, would have been Wednesday, yesterday, you know, as, assuming this is playing 5 to 7 p.m. on the MTR Radio Network, um, I would have caught the uh, Mets and Astros from Kissimmee, Florida. And that's actually my first time catching a game in that stadium, which I, I'm going to find interesting. I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, like I said, at this time, the game would have been gone already. Look, I'm enjoying it. I'll be catching a game in Jupiter, about three games in PSL this year, uh, down from the nine that I, I've caught each of the last couple of years. But, you know, at the time, I'll be down in Orlando chilling with the family. So great show planned today. Hope you guys uh, enjoy tuning in. I do have some good guests calling in. Um, Scott Pose, uh, Kevin Bass, Kevin uh, uh, Kevin Bass, and uh, Gary Templeton will be joining us. But uh, not the Kevin Bass and Gary Templeton you may be thinking of, which I think is going to be pretty funny. Kevin Bass is a minor league player, not the guy that struck out uh, against Jesse Orozco in the 1986 NLCS to get the Mets into the World Series that season, but he's a, a minor league player and played with the Cubs, a couple other organizations. He's got his own business going, so we're going to get, definitely get into that. Uh, Scott Pose, uh, we, a couple distinguishing things about Scott Pose, which we're going to get into when, once he calls in. He'll be the first guy to join us. Uh, Gary Templeton Jr., Gary Templeton II, is the son, of course, of Gary Templeton, who is now the manager of the Newark Bears and a longtime Major League shortstop who played, obviously, with the Cardinals and the Padres. Very uh, well-rounded player. Uh, but his son, who uh, had some success in the minor leagues, is going to be joining us. And in the second hour, we're going to get a hold of Eric Valent. Eric Valent played with the Phillies and, it, of course, came through the Phillies organization, played with the Mets, and we'll definitely get into some stuff about the 2006 Mets, stuff like that. So we're looking forward to everything going on here. Passball show in TR Radio Network. And I uh, hope everybody's enjoying themselves. A couple different things we're going to touch on. Obviously, this date in baseball history, which we'll touch on in a little bit. Uh, so many injuries going on, whether the World Baseball Classic is the reason or you know solely to blame for uh, injuries going on. And obviously, everybody's going to get into that point and kind of, criticize the World Baseball Classic for uh, getting these players hurt. And I'm, I'm not, I'll get into that in a little bit, but I obviously don't agree. Uh, I'm a proponent of the World Baseball Classic. I think it's good for baseball. And, I, and you know, though not everybody enjoys it or everybody loves it at the same level that I enjoy it, uh, I think it's, it's something that they should keep doing. And, you know, who cares about, you know, all the people that are down on it? Because, you know, you get down on it for so many different reasons, and, you know, you want to say, hey, it's not playing at the right time. I'm not going to use the injury excuse as a reason to not, not be involved in this and not want to keep this thing going any further. And so, so that's, some, that's something I'll touch on in a little bit. But uh, my last show, I kind of talked a little bit, and we started out with uh, some discussion on Brennan Bosch. And, of course, Bosch, the outfielder who played the last three seasons with the Detroit Tigers, was released and just about a day or so later, after he was granted it was released, he signed 
with the New York Yankees. And now this, to me, is something kind of funny because I'm going to get back to my point, which I made last week. I think that Brendan Bosch is going to end up playing for the Mets when it's all said and done. Now, you hear that and you're like, what? You know, why would you say something like that? Sounds like you're just uh, upset that he didn't uh, sign with the Mets. How are they going to end up with him? Uh, the more you read about the signing that Bosch had with the Yankees, uh, the Yankees' biggest interest in him was because of the fact that he has minor league options re- uh, remaining and the fact that he's going to go as a, as a, as a player. And the, Met, the Yankees can very well, if they want, send him down to the minors without having him clear through waivers. Now, the Yankees may, in addition, go through a little further and maybe try to push the buttons with this. And this is where I could see him end up signing with the Mets or another team. The Yankees may use the 40-man roster space that Brendan Bosch has and try to do something else. Let's say bring up a player, maybe a guy in a minor league contract or something that they want to add to the 40-man roster, designate him for assignment with the hopes and thoughts that he's going to end up uh, clearing waivers and they could send him down to the minor leagues, which would be ideal. That would be what the Yankees would want. They'd want to use him as an extra bat in the minor leagues, some depth, a guy who will uh, certainly at some point contribute to the major league roster. And this is where I think the Yankees will be wrong because there were other teams, regardless of how the reports say, the Yankees feel that they were really the only ones interested in signing Brennan Bosch when he was let go by the Detroit Tigers. And the truth is there are other teams, and a team like the New York Mets right before the season starts, I could see them adding him because the Mets do not have that much depth regardless of what they try to tell you right now. Kirk Neuenheis is probably not going to start the season on the team. Matt Decker is probably not going to start the season on the team. So right now you're looking at an outfield with Lucas Duda, Colin Calgill, Marlon Byrd, uh, Mike Baxter, and Jordani Valdespin as your outfielders slash maybe Valdespin a little bit on the infield. And I think if the Mets end up starting the season with David Wright and Daniel Murphy on the disabled list, which is quite a possibility, there will be an extra roster space or extra roster spot that they could add Bosch and perhaps use Val to spin as a second baseman while Murphy is out. And I think the Mets should, if, if they're not thinking about it, I think it's something they should consider and it's something to look at. Obviously, it's all going to you know have to do with the Yankees not – uh, putting him on their number one, their 25-man roster, and trying to outright him off their 40-man roster. And if that's the case, I can see the Yankees losing out on him. Now, from the Yankees' perspective, is the loss of Brennan Bosch, or the potential loss of Bren- Brennan Bosch, something that's that bad, or something they should be concerned about, something that's going to destroy the team? No. And the Yankees will move on. The Yankees will be fine. But the question is, how fine are they going to be? You know, Brennan Bosch aside. How are the Yankees going to look coming into this season? And you hear some reports that the injury to Mark Teixeira and his wrist seems to be a little more serious than first was reported. And I don't know how true you could say the story is, but it's gotten out there to a point where some think that Mark Teixeira could possibly miss the entire 2013 season. And if he does, I'll tell you, that is a huge, huge blow to the New York Yankees. Obviously, you know that. You don't need me to say that to understand that the Yankees in their position where they're at now from the fact that they have lost some power from that lineup and are going to count on Mark Teixeira to 
certainly be a major factor in that offense. They're already used to, or they've gotten used to the fact that Mark Teixeira will not be um, playing in Major League games for the first at least full month of the season, maybe sometime in May, perhaps June. So if this thing becomes a season-long injury or something that's a more of an extended period of time, uh, listen, I think this is something that could really destroy the Yankees' season. And you're looking about you know, short-term replacements. We talked about Dan Johnson. We talked about the possibility of Kevin Euclid playing first base, Juan Rivera playing first base. The Yankees are looking at this from the perspective of uh, being a short-term solution and to just run a, run a guy out there, play him 30 games, maybe 35 games, something like that, and just fill in until Teixeira is ready. Now, if they find out that Teixeira is going to be out maybe the first half of the season first or perhaps pushing the entire 2013 season, then I tell you the Yankees are going to be in rough shape. They really are. I mean, you look at the fact that they don't have the power from Nick Swisher and the power from Russell Martin. Um, you know, everybody says that the power from Alex Rodriguez doesn't matter anymore, but you've got to understand that it's still not there. And, you know, healthy Alex Rodriguez would allow you close to play first base, maybe DH, something like that. But at the same time, if Alex Rodriguez was not out, if he was not missing the first half of the season and possibly the entire season with the whole hip injury and the surgery and the whole thing, then maybe Kevin Euclid isn't signed. So I think the Yankees really got to worry about their injuries. Obviously, Curtis Granderson's still out. Uh, the team's going to pretty much run based on what Robinson Cano does. Because, you know, from Derek Jeter, everything that he did, his great season of 2012, he can't be counted on to be that same player, considering he's coming off of a broken ankle himself. And he's a guy that's going to go out there, and you know you're going to get 100% effort out of him. And if there's any chance that he's going to overachieve, he's going to do it. But you can't count on Derek Jeter to go out there and hit 330 this year. I'm sorry. If he, if he does, listen, great. You, know, you could add that to the mystique of Derek Jeter and everything that's been so great about him and everything you love and all the fans love to talk about. But you cannot expect him to go out there and even duplicate the season that he had last year. Now, if he does, more power to him, like I said. But this team is going to certainly revolve not only around Robinson Cano but around the starting pitching. And I think there is probably more pressure on the Yankees starters this year than there has been in years past. And I think it's something that's worth mentioning. It has to be considered. It has to be thought about. Because the Yankees starting pitching is probably their number one strength. And, and I could, you could probably say the bullpen is 1A. You know, assuming Mariano's back, assuming that Robertson is Robertson, Java contributes, David Ardsman, you know, the guys that helped out last season, the Eppleys and the Clay Rapatas and the Boone Logans, do what they did last year. Then the Yankees bullpen should be a strength. Let's say a 1A. But the starting pitching coming into this season has to be looked at as the Yankees' biggest strength. They're going to have to do stuff like situational hitting, run a little bit, uh, play good defense, stuff like that. And the starting pitching is really going to be what's going to determine whether this is going to be a 90-win team, an 85-win team, or even a team that struggles to stay at 500. And I could really see the third, the tertiary reason that I just mentioned there, being quite a possibility this year. And... Listen, I tell you, the injury to Teixeira and, you know, the potential loss of him for more of an extended period of time could be the final nail in the coffin when it comes to judging this team. And, there, listen, there's plenty of reasons. And I, I've told you guys before as I've gone through my 
30 to 1 MLB countdown previews, a team each each day. And we've gotten to some of my tricky picks now, which has gotten a little bit of a backlash. Has gotten some people saying, "Hey, how can you say that? You know, you're you're not quoting Baseball Prospectus, the whole thing." Uh, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But when it comes to the Yankees, you know, you got to talk about the ideal scenario, the best scenario, the number one situation where everything goes completely right for the New York Yankees, and it's going to have to be spelled with their starting pitching. CC Sabathia. His 15-6 and six season last year was probably looked a little bit under the radar because of a couple DL stints he had. But he, he pitched at the same level. He had a couple bad starts, but he pitched very well for the Yankees last year. He made you know, only 28 starts last season, but he's still the ace. He's still the big man, the guy that's going to go out there, pitch opening day, and is going to be counted on to have an 18-20 win season this year. But you add that with Andy Pettit, with Hiroki Kuroda, and Phil Hughes, and those guys are huge when it comes to whether this team is going to be successful or not. Because if they could go out there and give you six, seven innings, and maybe they get a little bit of a surprise from an Ivan Nova or Dave Phelps or Michael Pineda in the second half of the season, then I think it makes up for a lot of the team's shortcomings. It makes up for the fact that they've lost a lot of power in that lineup. It makes up for the fact that they do have some injuries to Granderson and to Shara, and we'll throw A-Rod in a mix, too, because he's a, he's a player that is certainly going to be counted on to produce once he's healthy. So not having these guys in the lineup, losing the other guys to free agency, the starting pitching is going to become that much more important. And I'll tell you, if the Yankees do not get stellar starting pitching, then I'll tell you, they could be at the bottom of this division. And not just at the bottom of the division where they're not competing with teams of like uh, Toronto and Baltimore, but they may be at the very bottom. They may be below Boston this year because Boston, like I said, has done a good job to address its particular needs. And they had about eight or nine different needs that coming out of the 2012 season. It could have looked any worse for the Boston Red Sox than it did. But that being said, I think the Yankees are going to determine really how these other teams do. Because if the Yankees are that bad, if they don't get any starting pitching, if Hiroki Kuroda shows his age, if Andy Pettit can't cut it anymore, if Phil Hughes you know, goes out there and gets beat up a good handful of times and they can't decide on a fifth starter because everybody they run out there gets beat up, then this team could lose a lot of games because they're not going to make up for it with the offense, even playing their home games at Yankee Stadium. And I think that all has to be thought about and considered when you're trying to evaluate this team. Because, listen, I mean, they, they need a lot of things to go right. And I'm not going to put them in the same league or the same category as the New York Mets. Because the Mets need a lot of things to go right just to have a chance to finish 500 this year. The Yankees don't. The Yankees need a lot of things to go right, though, if they want to be the Yankees. If they want to go out there and win 85, 90 games like every Yankee fan expects them to do every single season. So I think, I think those are things that have to be considered when you're trying to judge the New York Yankees. And I think, you know, I think, I, I think you gotta, you, you got to maybe take a little bit of a more pessimistic route when you're trying to judge this team. But the Teixeira injury can absolutely be devastating. And I'll tell you, I'm, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be so, so happy or so excited, you know, to see this team, uh, you know, in the 2013 season. And I think it's something that has to be looked at. But moving on, 
you know, we talked about the 30 to 1 MLB countdown, you know, what I do with the previews and the whole thing. And I tell you, a lot of, a lot of people kind of get on my nerves sometimes when it comes to judging it because I think they expect when I do the previews to judge teams the same exact way they do or the same way that Baseball Prospectus does. I think Baseball Prospectus does a phenomenal job. They really do a good job getting you know the proper win totals and kind of giving you an understanding of what you expect the teams to do over the course of the season. And I, I think looking at it from, from that way, it, a lot of people just assume that that's the way everybody's going to judge it. Well, if everybody judges it that way, and I've said this a thousand times, then everybody would have been wrong you know, giving the Baltimore Orioles any hope last season, or the even the Washington Nationals, for that matter. You know, the Oakland A's aside, I mean, the Washington Nationals were expected to be another team away. That's what baseball perspective said. So how dare anybody pick the Washington Nationals to win the National League East last season? But you know what? They went out there and they did it. They went out there and they did it. And the fact that they, that they did it does, you know, doesn't mean that they are, you know, favorited this year, but if you read the pattern of the way baseball prospectus runs it, runs things, uh, they're going to go with what happened last year. They're going to favor the Nationals. They're going to even favor teams like Baltimore and Oakland to uh, have high win totals, maybe in the mid-80s or even more, because of what they did last season. But you got to understand, sometimes teams fade away. Sometimes teams that hit a pinnacle as a certain season, will have the same amount of talent next year and drop a little bit. And that doesn't get looked at enough. And, I, and I, I'm trying to look at it, maybe not like I'm the, I'm the one, I'm the one that says it the way it has to be, but I'm throwing in some caveats. I'm throwing out some possibilities. A team that you may not think is as talented as Baseball Perspective says or you and everybody else say may overachieve this year. And the Arizona Diamondbacks of 2011 are another example. What about the Padres of 2010? Who had either one of those teams performing at the level that they did in those respective seasons? The answer is nobody. And I'm doing, I'm doing these previews, and listen, I love the discussion. I love going back and, uh, you know, going, you know having, having these discussions with, with people. But, you know, I get into certain teams, and I started, you know, you, you really get through the first ten or so. And they're all teams that, you know, we all think are going to be towards the bottom of the league. And, you know, there's not as much discussion involved in it. You know, you start with the Houston Astros. You moved on to the Miami Marlins, the Twins, the Mets. You know, I'm not going to go through a whole list with you. But, you know, you get to the teams that aren't as good on paper. And you do their previews first. And you say where they're going to be in the standings. And, you know, as you move on, you get to where there's a lot of parity in the game. And really from team like 18 or 17 on, you're looking at teams that could probably all finish over 500. And, per, you know, based on my record predictions and stuff like that, a lot of them will. And, you know, when you get to a team like the Seattle Mariners, you know, you could either be in with them or you could just say, hey, they're off seasons overrated. It's pretty easy to go with the latter. You know, you could say, hey, they brought in Jason Bay. Raul Obanez is old. You know, how are these guys going to make that big of a difference? But if you take a look at the roster and you particularly look at the young pitchers that really nobody has spent a lot of time talking about because a lot of them haven't, haven't been heard of yet. You, know, you got Felix Hernandez. You got the, uh, the Japanese pitcher, uh, Iwakasha. And those two guys really are going to be the top of the rotation. But if they get something that you don't expect from guys that you may not have heard of, 
could the Mariners compete? And I think that they will. I think they'll be at the level of the Texas Rangers. I think they'll be maybe even better than the Oakland Athletics this year. And, and am I am I am I crazy to say that? I don't I don't think so. I think me as anybody else, I, I have the right to throw an opinion like that. Does, does that mean that I'm nuts? Does that mean that I'm absolutely wrong? The answer is, you know, it's really out there and it remains to be seen. And that being said, I am taking the Seattle Mariners not to the playoffs. I don't see that. I don't see them getting to the postseason this season this year. But I could see them going out there and winning about 82, 83, 84 games, something like that, because of a couple of the moves that they made offensively. You know, you got to look at it from this perspective. Offensively, this team was horrible. This team could not have performed any worse offensively last year. And I think you got, you look at a couple of the young players, a Kyle Seeger, a Dustin Ackley, Franklin Gutierrez was hurt last year, Jesus Montero. All those players are going to be a year older. And I don't think they're going to perform at the level that they did last year. And we're going to put that on hold, and we're going to welcome in our guest, which I believe is Scott Pose. Is it Scott? Yes, John. Hey, what's going on, man? Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Oh, yeah, you bet. All right, man, listen, I wanted to start out kind of getting into a couple things with you, and, you know, I hope, I hope everything's going well with you. Um, you know, you, you, you had the opportunity to be the first batter in the history of the Florida Marlins franchise. Tell us a little bit about uh, that. Well, it was kind of a, a uh, fluke deal because I was a leadoff hitter, and that was my only opportunity really to make the team. And what had happened was uh, we were all sort of misfits in a sense because we were cast off from other organizations assembled to start the uh, Marlins team, and uh, we're all battling for positions. And um, I was a fly in the ointment in a sense where they had a lot of guys coming in and penciled in and, I ended up having a pretty good spring training, and it came down right to the very end. And um, uh, I, I was just hoping to make the team, and um, I still wasn't told anything right at the end of spring training. And so we had our last exhibition game against the Royals, uh, which was in Jacksonville at the time. We were flying down, and we had a practice the day before, and Ray Lassman called me in the office and said, hey, you're going to be starting in center field tomorrow. And I was hoping just to hear I made the team, let alone – find out I was going to be starting. And so that put a lump in my throat to see the size of Dallas. And um, from then on, uh, I, I was off and running thinking about the game. But uh, it was an unbelievable experience because uh, they had a lot of media down there kicking off the ball in South Florida that they've wanted for a long time. And it was a lot of fun while it lasted. No, absolutely, man. And I'm sure that it must have been, you know, like I think it all probably dawned on you. Number one, that you made the team. Number two, that you're starting. And then you go up there and you're the first batter up in the history of the Florida Marlins franchise. I'm sure that's something that you couldn't even fathom. Well, no, it wasn't. I didn't I didn't anticipate the gravitas that was associated with it. I um, was an, anticipating just trying to win the game and help the team do what I could, and, and that was a spot that I was comfortable in hitting in. Um, but um, it just happened that I was a leadoff hitter and was the, the first batter in the franchise, and it's something that I'll always cherish and enjoy, and we, we won the ball game, and it was a thrill for a lot of us because I think five of us were making our major league debut that day. Wow. Now, that, that, that's amazing, man. Now, you know, obviously it doesn't it doesn't turn out, you know, being so well for you that year. You're only up there for a handful of games. I believe it was 15 games. You end up being sent down again. Um, was this something that you, you anticipated, 
or was it was it once you uh, you got the job, you had a chance to start? Did you think you would have gotten more of a chance to play than you did? Well, I I think the Marlins, looking back on hindsight, twenty twenty, that they had somebody penciled in um, that had all the tools necessarily, and and that's what they wanted to go with. But the way that things unfolded. Um, I had a good spring training and did did well, and I had done well the year before. Granted, it was in Double A, and I earned the chance to make the team. And, and Renee Lastman told me that as long as I kept doing what I was doing, I would continue to play. Little did I know at the time it meant continue to hit around 400. And so it was just a matter of time before um, uh, they, they they saw that I would need to make an adjustment, and, and that was just it. And and they made their decision, and, and that's fine with that. I know that. I'm short on what would be called, I was never a prospect or ability, and, and some guys don't have as long a leash as others, and mine certainly wasn't that long, and, and I did the best I could with the given circumstances and what I had. Yeah, now you were taken by the Marlins in the Rule 5 draft, I believe, the year before. So that wasn't uh, right. that wasn't with, like, the major league rules that you had to be on the, the, the 25-man roster all season, right? That's right. They made an exception that year. Uh I found out I was the last player taken in the Rule 5 draft, but they waived the you had to stay in the major leagues all year rule so they could stock the, France, the, the farm system for the Marlins at the time. And so once you were taken by them, you had to be taken on the major league roster, which was the, the best part of it is I was on the major league roster. And then um, then it, they didn't have to offer you back necessarily or you didn't have to stay all year um, uh, for them to maintain your rights. So that's kind of how things worked out. Yeah, yeah good. I'm glad you cleared that up because I, I didn't really understand it when I was reading into it myself. Once again, this is John Pialli. I'm here with former major league outfielder Scott Pose. Now, Scott, after that, you end up you know going through a top, couple of different franchises, and you end up playing for the Yankees a little bit. Now, tell us a little bit about you know being part of the 1997 Yankees, coming off of a World Series, of course, and you know it was the year in between the the four out of five years that they won. Tell us a little bit about being part of that team. Well, I joke about it, but um, I, I was on the Yankees that sandwiched in between four that we didn't win the World Series, and therefore it's my fault because I wasn't on any of the other four teams. But um, what had happened was I had finished the year in the Blue Jays AAA in Syracuse, New York, and I uh, thought my career would have been over because I had to hit 300 to stay around. I didn't have a lot of power. In fact, I had little to none, and you and I had the same number of major league home runs. But uh, what had happened was um, – I told my wife we were going to move back here to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I would start my real world if I didn't get a big league invite. And next thing you know, uh, I had a big league invite from the Yankees. I had no idea why, but I took it and went down to spring training. And when I was in spring training, Stump Merrill, about the third day in, called me over and said, do you know why you're here? I said, I have no idea, but I'm very much appreciative and I'm grateful. And he said, well, you're here because of me. And he said, the reason why is, we saw you, we played against you. There, Columbus was the AAA in the International League, same as the Syracuse Chiefs were at the time. And we played you in April, and you, you ran a great time down the second base uh, on a ground out in April. And I said, well, yeah, that's fine, but you're supposed to have fun anyway. He goes, well, that's not the rub. But what happened was, we played you guys in August. You were on a terrible team, and we weren't that good. We were about 25 games under 500. But he said, you ran the same time in August as you did in April. He goes, that left an impression of me, and that's why you're here. Like, okay, I'll take it, but I didn't expect it to be something like that. Everybody thinks it's going to be a five-hit game or something like that, but it was just merely running a ball out. And that got me the opportunity to play for the Yankees and go into spring training. They told me straight up that 
you know, we got a bunch of people here, and we don't know where you're going to fit in. We're just coming off the World Series. Just do what you can, and good Lord willing, things will work out. Well, I got the opportunity to play, and they had a lot of outfielders that were older, so I got plenty of the bats. They wanted to rest them, and then some of those guys went down, and evidently I met, made enough of a favorable impression where they were able to call me up during the middle of the year. On May 12th, I'll never forget it, and was called up and was able to contribute and, and be the fifth outfielder, pinch run, play some outfield, and um, step in and hit beat off or wherever. And it was quite a ride because I ended up being up over two thirds of the year, and it was on a pretty good team. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And uh, yeah, obviously, you know, the the role that you had is a kind of an important role because, you know, you, you know, you need that extra outfielder to kind of go out there and do, you know, do things like that. And you know, the pinch runner, you know, is is kind of important also. Now. You know, moving forward, you end up getting you know quite a bit of a chance to play for the Kansas City Royals in uh, 1999, kind of into 2000. Did, was that really the moment where you thought you were kind of at your pinnacle? That maybe you had a chance to kind of stick for good? Well, I had hoped so. What was it was kind of funny the way it happened is that I signed back with the Yankees in 1998, and I didn't get up that year because they were winning 125 games. They didn't need any help. Um, but I wasn't a roster player, and I was able to talk with Brian Cashman, and he said more of the same would be for you this year, in meeting 1999. And but he had heard Kansas City was interested, and so maybe that might be a good option for me if I wanted to, you know, make a major league team. But the way it unfolded in Kansas City was that I was one of the guys sent down a couple of days before spring training um, ended, and then Jeff Conan got traded to Baltimore. So it opened up a spot on the Major League roster. And so they called me up the day that they were breaking camp to come to a minor league game, and Tony Meester told me, by the way, you're coming with us. I don't know how far, how long it is, but you're going to come with us and you're going to break camp with the Royals. So that was my chance to make the Major League roster. I was spring training since the Marlins, and I was going with them. But the caveat was they really didn't know how long it would be. It could have been for a week. It could have been for two weeks. And that was something that I was used to with the Yankees. Well, I did not know I had made the team for the entire year until August when Herc, the GM, came up to me and said, Scott, you've been with the big league club the entire year. And I said, no, not yet. You know, I'm hoping for it this year. And he told me about the middle of August, well, you've done it this year because September call-ups were coming up, and if I could have made it a couple more weeks, then the roster expanded, and so I was on. So I really wasn't breathing easy at all during that year. I was just performing for hopefully the next week's game or whatever it may be or that series and hoping to do enough contribute to help the team win and see the value and, and so then finally I could breathe easy in that September and I was left on the roster um, uh, that off season and made that and came back to spring training and and um, uh, that was kind of kind of the run so but it was never yeah I made it it was yeah you survived and then oh look at this you've, you've made it for an entire year. No, that definitely sounds interesting, man. Once again, it's John Piel. I'm here with former Major League outfielder Scott Pose. Now, there's a couple a couple things that I find pretty interesting. You uh, you played you played a role in uh, for love of the for the love of the game. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How you were approached by that, and how you ended up being part of that movie. Well, in 1998, I had signed back with the Yankees, and I was in Columbus in AAA, and um, um, we all had agents, and I had an agent that was looking for jobs because the Yankees had told me that well. They're winning. It didn't look like they were going to uh, call me up, but I was free to go with any other major league team, provided that they were going to take me to the major leagues right away. So kind of our own rule five. And this was about um, got was the end of August, September timeframe. And he called me up and said, "Well, Scott, I don't have a major league job for you, but how would you like to be in a movie?" 
And I said, well, sure, what is it? Well, he explained to me that Kevin Costner had this script, and he had been sitting on it for a few years, and he wanted a few, he wanted to, to shoot at Yankee Stadium. And he had a few players in mind. But as a condition for use of the stadium, George Steinbrenner said he had to approve anybody that wore the Yankees uniform in the movie. And so that essentially meant that it had to be Yankees minor leaguers, in a sense. And then the Tigers got wind of it and kind of did the same thing. And so what we had to do was, and in our headshot, they assigned us a role in the movie, and then we were up there for about, right as the World Series was ending in San Diego, and the plan was, as soon as the series ended, they could start shooting the Yankee Stadium, but when we went up there, the series was still going on, and so we were playing practice games and getting the script down, and then once they clinched, we were in filming the very next night, and stayed up there until Thanksgiving. And that story I mentioned to you about talking to Brian Cashman, I was able to do that during the movie because we're right there in Yankee Stadium and I got to go up and talk to him in his office. And he was very honest with me and very forthright, and I'm grateful for that. And and that's kind of how things unfolded. And while we were there, the Yankees were parading free agents through. I remember Brian Jordan was coming through uh, because the, the green room or the waiting room, while they get the camera set up, were the batting cages. And they brought down some weights and we could lift weights and, Ricky Lede was there and a number of other minor leaguers. Mike Buddy was one uh, who got up with the Yankees that year, and we were just all kind of talking and, and working out and waiting for our chances to shoot in the movie and, and get our workouts in while that was going on. And so that's how it all came to fruition, and then we thought it was going to be a straight, hardcore baseball movie as much as we were on the field filming. And it was more of a love story, but we got to see it. It was a thrill of a lifetime. I'm grateful for it. All the people were super kind, and uh, it just gave us a look at life that we never were exposed to and um, we certainly enjoyed it. And it's certainly something you could add to your resume, huh? <laughs> well, I suppose so, um, for what it's worth. But we got to see that side. And many of the actors in it were a lot in the same boat that we were. There were people just trying to make a name and hit the big leagues at the big time. So they were essentially akin to us, the minor league guys. And, and um, so it was kind of a neat parallel. But then we got to rub elbows with some pretty pretty good actors. And just like I rubbed elbows with some pretty good players. No, absolutely, man. Now, now, did you, when you were doing this movie, did you learn anything about yourself? Did you say, hey, maybe after I'm done playing baseball, maybe I got a little bit of a career in acting? Oh, gosh, no. I pretend <laughs> to, I, I, I tell everybody that I got paid to pretend to do what I did every day, and that was pretend to be a baseball player. Um, I have no acting ability whatsoever. <laughs> but um, when you're playing in the context of the game, that's what we're doing anyway, and so that's kind of how it worked out. And Dave Island was in a, a body double for Costner in that. And we were instrumental in getting him up there for it. And he's later the Yankee pitching coach, and now he's the pitching coach for the Royals. But it's kind of a small world because you run across those guys and, and see things. But, no, I knew that that, that would be a short-lived acting career. Now, you, now your career was profiled in uh, Journeyman, which is uh, it was called 24 Bittersweet Tales of Short Major League Careers, uh, start, uh, short major league sports careers. Tell us a little bit about, about being involved in that. Well, um, I was called um, uh, um, by Kurt to do the to do the book, and what he mentioned in it was was he was just giving a different uh, perspective on different stories about people that were in the minor leagues, and he said they've ended in all kinds of different ways. Some were unhappy with the way they ended. Some were grateful for the way it ended. But he just wanted to tell my story. And he said, would you be interested in doing it? I said, sure, I'll tell you what I know. And I said, I'll first tell you that I'm grateful for whatever chance I got. And I'm not bitter by any stretch. I've made the most of the ability that I had. And, and that's the way things worked out. I put all my cards on the table. And and um, that's the way I hope it came across. But uh, I thought he did a good job telling it accurately. And, and um, 
Uh, that's how he presented it. Because he wanted to give it all sides from guys that were on the fringe, almost made it, did make it for a while. Um, because essentially nobody ever trains to be the guy that's the journeyman or the bench player. Everybody has the dreams of being the one that's up at the bottom ninth in the World Series. And it, it doesn't always work out that way. But when you have that mindset, you know, you go and you make the best of it. And it turned out that I was going to be a 25th man, best case in, in, in most situations. And if that was the case, I was going to be the best 25th man I could be. Now, right now, are you still broadcasting? Uh, yeah, I, I saw you were doing some work for the Durham Bulls. Is that uh, are you still still doing with them? Yeah, I'm doing that and with the Big Ten Network as well. Okay, um, cool. I'm the, I'm the guy that used to play that knows a little bit about baseball, but um, uh, I love talking baseball. If I could do it full-time, I would. Um, but uh, uh, and then the Bulls are here, uh, AAA team for the, the Tampa Bay Rays, and I've done – about 35 to 40 games for them at home uh, for the past, uh, I think, six years now. So it's been a lot of fun for me, and it keeps me plugged in, and I can see a lot of the guys that I used to play with, although they're all coaches now. I feel sorry for anybody that I'm playing with that's still playing. Uh, but um, uh, I can keep in touch. It gives me um, a, a shot in the arm, and, and I can see my old friends, and I love the game, always will. It gets in your blood, and you can't get it out. So I'm thrilled for any opportunity to talk yeah, definitely, man. Listen, Scott, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you sharing some stories and stuff like that. Hopefully I could uh, speak to you sometime in the near future. Yeah, call me anytime. It's a pleasure, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, anytime, man. And that was Scott Pose, former Major League outfielder. Some very good stories there. What we're going to do is we're going to try to jump in if we can. But anyway. But, yeah, that was, that, was, that was some good stuff with Scott Pose. We're going to move on. We're going to get into some other things. We do have some other stuff going on. We're going to probably just take a little bit of a break, I think. That's what we'll do. We'll take a quick break, be back with a little more. Welcome back, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli. Uh, so some good stuff with Scott Pose there, you know, a guy that gets a chance to be the first player to ever bat in the history of the Florida Marlins, ends up being in a movie. Uh, you know, as a broadcaster now for the Durham Bulls and does some uh, Big Ten games. So, you know, phenomenal uh, job there. But moving on, we're going to get into a couple different things. I started getting on the Seattle Mariners a little bit. And, I'm, and I, listen, I'm not necessarily going out of my way to friggin' jump on their bandwagon and accept them as being uh, a team that's going to win the division, get to the postseason. But I do think they could surprise this year. And if you look at a couple things going on with that team, um, Hisashi Iwakuma, I think, is going to be a very good starting pitcher. He's a guy that can go out there and play some, uh, you know, and, and probably make 30 starts. And if he can go out there and get the job done, uh, I think he, he could definitely take the place of Jason Vargas. And, you know, that being said, I think, I think you could get a good one-two punch, maybe not at the same level as Felix Hernandez, but a guy that can go out there and do what Vargas did last season. You know, go out there and make 30 starts, uh, pitch, you know, close to 200 innings, uh, win maybe 15, 16 games if the team is good. So I think right there you got the top two in the rotation. You throw in a Joe Saunders, who's there as a free agent, that doesn't really do anything great but goes out there, gives you innings, can win 12 games if your team's very good. And I do think the bottom two guys in a rotation, in my opinion, are going to kind of take it to a different level and make this rotation from mediocre to very good. And I think it's something that has to be looked at. Blake Bevin, who's a guy that came over in a trade with the Detroit Tigers for Doug Pfister, and Erasmo Ramirez 
are going to be two guys that I think are going to be very steady in this rotation. And I think the Mariners kind of quietly are going to be able to go out there and put a rotation that can can do a, a job that hasn't uh, that hasn't been done over the last couple of years. And they're going to get, in my opinion, some good starting pitching. And you throw in the fact that their bullpen is very young with Tom Wilhelmson as the closer and other guys that are going to contribute, like Stephen Pryor, Charlie Furbush, uh, Carter Capps. These are all guys that throw the ball hard and get more strikeouts than innings pitched. And you're going to have quietly a bullpen that is going to produce, especially if Danny Holson, their, their uh, top pitching prospect, has any impact at this level. I mean, you could go out there and surprise and maybe be a reliever. And if he ends up being a reliever, I know they want him to be a starter eventually, and that's the way the way it ends up looking. But if this guy comes in and be, and, and becomes a, you know, let's say a one-inning guy, maybe they're focused on maybe not overdoing it as far as uh, innings pitched. And we're going to put that on hold, and we're going to welcome in former minor league outfielder Kevin Bass. Kevin, you there, buddy? Yeah, what's going on? Hey, what's up, man? Thanks for calling in, man. Sorry about the mix-up before, man. I was I, I couldn't do the call conferencing thing. It was messing me up. Oh, that, that that's fine. So I'm uh, glad you you you, know, you were nice enough to call back. But um, no, that's fine. <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, thanks for having a couple minutes today. And uh, you know, yeah. uh, listen, what what are you up to now, man? It looks like you got a uh, you got a little business going, huh? Yeah, actually, I own um, Bass Sports. The main thing is Bass Bats, and of course, it's Bass Sports Online. Um, dot com, and it's I don't know it just keeps on growing in different I guess different industries because right now you know when we first started we started for baseball of course that's what my whole family knows and then now <laughs> and now it's finally and it went slow pitch softball out of the blue so now it's finally we're getting to push it back into the the, the baseball side youth and adult and then of course into the the fast pitch side so. Now, now, what is what is it? What is it? It's kind of like an academy or something. Are you, are you developing people, or what, you know, what's, what's no, no, no. We actually okay. it's, it's we have equipment. our own brand. Oh, okay. Product. All right, and that's, that's yeah. cool, man. So, so it's, it's it's like a like a sports equipment type of thing, you know, softball, baseball yeah. equipment. Yeah, actually, we have shoes, um, fielding gloves, batting gloves, and then now, of course, the main thing I guess we're into now is, is the bat. So it started out, we did, you know, the first bat we ever launched was actually a pink bat for slow-pitch softball because my grandmother died of breast cancer. And then, of course, you know, we, we ended up doing pretty, pretty good in the slow-pitch market. And then, of course, now we went ahead last year. We are indeed everything for the, I guess, the fast-pitch side and now the, the baseball. And then, of course, we just launched our um, big league wood side, you know, to try to get the major league guys that we know. No, it looks like you're on to something good, man. So, listen, best of luck with that. Hey, uh, before before we talk a little bit about your your playing career, how often do you get people that refer to you as, let's say, the other Kevin Bass, the guy that played for the Astros, you know, with the, you know, Jesse Orozco strikeout in game six of the the NLCS type of thing? I get it a lot, you know, especially on the phone, of course, you know, and it's, you know, a lot of people say, "Are, are, are you? And I'm, you know, of course, I'm not him, but, of course, I am, you know, one that I guess did play. You know, I was drafted by the Cubs in the third round. And then, of course, you know, I've been around baseball my whole life. We've trained to, you know, to, I guess, get to that level. And, of course, the older brother played with the Braves. My younger brother was actually a first-rounder with Baltimore in 01. So, you know, of course, that's, you know, and that's the main reason when we started the company, you know, we knew that, you know, 
only do we design it, but we can actually test it from an athlete's standpoint, you know what I mean, to make sure, because it's all about performance. Yeah. So that's the way, I guess now that's the reason we're in this industry, so. No, no, absolutely, man. Now, you know, as you came up with the Cubs, you know, you ended up having a couple of years up there. Um, was it was it everything you thought it would be? Did you you, th- you thought you performed at your your best of ability? No, I, actually, I guess the older you get, you sort of have those epiphanies. Uh-huh. You know, what people don't realize is, you know, how hard you work to get to those or to get to that level. Once you get there, that's when you got to work ten times harder to stay there. You yeah, know what absolutely. I mean? The old saying is, it's easy to get there, but staying there is the hard part. You know what I mean? Of course, the older you get, you start looking back. And then, because I actually, in 01, 02, I retired or basically, you know, got the release from the Cubs, sort of went back and did some football, whatever. And then I actually, in 06, went back to the Independent League. Yes. And then I signed back with the White Sox in 07. Yeah, and it looks course, like, you know, you know. I guess it's every every pro guy's story. You get injured, in which I don't, <laughs> you know, I got injured. And then, of course, the business was started and at the same time, so. Yeah, so you you feel now that uh, I mean obviously you know the uh, success of your business and it seems like everything's going pretty well with it. It looks like it kind of worked out for you. Well, actually, uh, it's it's one of these. And don't get me wrong. It's I guess I've I've learned a lot. I got I call them life lessons. Yeah. Actually, by going through and you know being an athlete and going through the trial and error of the playing days has actually made me successful as an adult or a businessman because you know you're going to make mistakes. That's just part of it. But it's about the future. It's not the past. You know, you see what I mean? Yeah. It's just more. You got to know where you're going. It's not where you come from. You sort of, you know, sort of, you know. <laughs> I guess like my mother-in-law says, you know, dress for where you want to be, not where you at. You see what I mean? So. Now listen, man. Listen, I wish you the best of luck with your business, man. Hopefully, it, uh, you know, it, you got a website going on with it, or you know, just uh, yeah, throw a little plug there. Let let people know where you could uh, check out your equipment at. Yeah, it's actually it's BassSportsOnline.com, okay. and then of course they'll be able to see everything. We actually baseball, softball, and then of course the slow pitch. You know both sides of the softball side. And then we're actually launching the football, and we actually have a golf line too. All right, so, man. Now listen, best of luck with everything, man. Hopefully I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Thanks a lot, Kevin. I appreciate it, John. Thank you. Yep. Take care. Bye. Um, you know, from uh, speaking with Kevin Bass, and obviously Kevin Bass, you know, is not even related to the other to the other Kevin Bass that I think most baseball fans are familiar with, and it just it just shows that you know once again we're talking to players that you know have up and down rides, and uh, you know Gary Templeton is now uh, you know the senior Gary Templeton's father is managing the Newark Bears, which is a team that you know has had some associations with the MTR Radio Network before, and now. You know, his son is managing at age 34 in a, an independent league over in Hawaii. And I think, you know, listen, I mean, it, you get some experience, particularly at a young age. I mean, a lot of players, you know, end up not becoming good managers because they're so focused on playing. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, something like this, like a career does not pan out as much as anticipated, it could be the best thing to happen to them. And, you know, which, you know, obviously both of those guys the best of luck. Uh, you know, it looks like Kevin Bass is doing very well with Bass Sports and uh, the bats and the equipment and the whole thing. So, you know, listen, man, hopefully these guys can keep it up. And, you know, a lot of, lot of different, uh, lot of different uh, things brought up here on the past ball show. But, listen, we're going to take, uh, take our first break, which will be about – you know, five minutes or so. We'll be back in the second hour. And, uh, you know, once again, thanks a lot for Scott Pose, Kevin Bass, Gary Templeton, 
And we'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network.